Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we turn to spring. First, Colta Ives, a curator emerita at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, joins me to discuss public parks, private gardens from Paris to Provence. The show is at the Met through July 29th. Ives wrote the catalog for the exhibition. Her co-curator was Susan Allison Stein. The show looks at how developments in landscape design, horticulture, and the opening up of royal property combine to focus mostly 19th century French artists on parks and gardens. Amazon offers the exhibition's terrific catalog for $38. Of course, we'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, artist Anne Appleby joins me to discuss new work she's showing in We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me at the Tacoma Art Museum in Washington. Thanks to the many of you who have added ratings for the program on iTunes and in the other places where you download the show. Please keep those ratings coming. Nothing is more valuable to us in helping new people find the program. Colt Ives, after the break. MoMA's celebrated new photography series is back with Being New Photography 2018, now on view at MoMA in New York City. This year's edition presents recent work by 17 artists from around the world and asks how photography can capture what it means to be human. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents the first comprehensive survey in the United States of work by contemporary artist Jan Vo. In his installations, sculptures, photographs, and works on paper, Vo questions the way we define ourselves through personal histories, cultural affiliations, and national allegiances. He treats objects, whether they are ancient Roman sculptures, letters written by prominent politicians, or glittering chandeliers from a Grand Parisian ballroom, as narrative vessels that are both vividly personal and broadly historical. Visit through May 9th and experience artist tours, films, and concerts in conjunction with Jan Vo, Take My Breath Away. Learn more at Guggenheim.org. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Salmon Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. And we're back. Colta Ives, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. It occurred to me after reading your book and catalog that there are a couple of places to start the story of why and how 19th century French artists became interested in parks and gardens. And of course, one might be in the 14th century, where Western European painters were painting the Virgin Mary into gardens. And then to think about French painters as engaged in secularizing a certain artistic tradition the other way of thinking about it is is one that's very in keeping with the internationalization and the popularization of science in the 19th century. And that's more or less the one you chose to go with. What is that story and why did you pick it? Well, I, I was rather fascinated by the story of, of plant hunters going out and finding new forms of plant life and bringing them back to the old world from the new world. And It just seemed amazing to me that there were all of these forms of plant life that we take for granted today that were introduced to Europe in the 18th and 19th century and then were hybridized and then 
distributed throughout Europe and America. And that, to me, seemed to be an amazing phenomenon and, and really led a, to this popularization of, of cultivating gardens. So were the same people who were acquiring and studying those non-European, non-French plants, the same people who were working with the aristocracy and royalty to develop parks and or gardens? Well, the development of, of parks, public parks, is, is really a 19th century phenomenon because gardens before that were, if they were ornamental gardens, were mainly in the backyards of, of royalty and aristocrats. The, the parks are a phenomenon of the 19th century. That's it's kind of a separate separate phenomenon. But indeed, the, the science of botany, which began to develop in the 18th century into into a sort of separate branch of science and an approach to plants that treated them as something other than just medicinal remedies. I mean, that was. That was a very big thing, and particularly in France, science was the science of studying plants was was very well developed, and and that's why the explorer Alexander von Humboldt, instead of taking all of his thousands of plant specimens that he'd found in the Americas, North and South America, instead of taking them back to Prussia, he took them to Paris because he knew. There were scientists at the Jardin des Plantes who were prepared to appreciate and, and study this material. All the more amazing, because uh, I think his funders were Prussian, not French. <laughs> That's right. Yes, they were very annoyed about that, wanted to get him back to Berlin. <laughs> he eventually did, did turn up there, but, but, but France was his, his base of study and, and the place where he published his, his work. The other major, I don't know if protagonist is quite, quite the right word, but the other major influence on artists who became interested in French parks and gardens were, of course, Poussin and Claude Laurent. And in, indeed, a Laurent, a, a, a Claude painting is the, the third image in, in the book. So in America, we we well know the story of how kind of Claudian landscapes helped instigate and, and, and richly informed the approach American painters had to the 19th century American landscape. What impact did Poussin and Claude have on the 19th century French artists featured in the show in your book? Well, I think that their influence first was that of inspiring a new form of garden design that was based more on a natural landscape rather than an artificially designed landscape. The the so-called picturesque garden style that was developed first in England in the 18th century was called picturesque because the gardens were supposed to look like <laughs> pictures. And uh, the pictures that they chose to imitate were those by Poussin and, uh, and Claude Lorrain. So it's it's an interesting kind of influence because those paintings were were the inspiration for for changing landscapes to look more like the pictures so this sounds like an a moment an amazing moment of recursiveness where 17th century painting informs 18th and 19th century landscape designers as we might call them now uh, who then influence 19th century artists of those landscapes 
Oh yes, well it's a, it's it's a rather complicated development, and and there are lots of different influences. I mean, there are a lot of ideas that were changing about what nature and the landscape represented, and how one might relate to it. The the understanding that that nature was something not to be afraid of, but to be embraced. And in all of its wildness and naturalness was something that came out of the age of uh, enlightenment. So there were, there were a lot of different emotional responses to landscape and to horticulture from the 18th century on. So I think before we get into the middle of the 19th century, it would be useful to understand the two different types of gardens that proliferated among the wealthy, the landholding aristocratic elite in France and England, because the English style of gardens and the French style of gardens were quite different. How, how so? The English really initiated a garden style that was well, first of all, picturesque in in that it showed a landscape represented in paintings as a, a kind of idealized natural landscape. You know, the flow of land was gradual and graceful and that there were sort of uh, pockets of trees and uh, well-shaped lakes and winding paths. And the English wanted to reproduce that look uh, around their homes instead of the kinds of gardens that we associate with royalty in France, which were very tightly designed and in, in, in geometric forms with a lot of straight lines and clipped boxwood hedges and a kind of rigid landscape that was where, where nature was tightly controlled rather than allowed to look kind of like the way it just grew. Are there a couple of prints or paintings in the show that might illustrate that? We have some 17th century prints that show the Lenotre's designs, uh, designed a, a landscape for the gardens of, of the Tuileries in Paris and also, of course, for the, the palace at Versailles. And that's the most uh, famous uh, formal French garden that, that one can visit today, although it's, it's, it's rather altered since it was under Louis XIV. But yeah, that's 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 the the classic uh, formal French garden that was meant to be approached mainly as a view. You would you would sit uh, you would stand at the windows of the palace and look out on these um, designs that seemed to be uh, embroidered into <laughs> into the grounds and mainly flat grounds. You know, they didn't have mountains and and. Uh, uh, hills and rocky grottos and things like that. And it was, a, it was a very manicured kind of landscape. In the 18th century, art, and particularly painting, is often kind of a part of some of these places. How does Hubert Robert and his inclusion in one of these formal French gardens kind of point to the relationship between painting and gardens? It's kind of interesting that that French painters got involved with uh, garden design. Robert and also Boucher got involved in in making gardens for the French, but their their designs tended to lean more towards the relaxed English style rather than the tight, uh, organized style of Le Nôtre. And even at Versailles, where uh, Robert had actually been appointed a garden designer 
to, to Louis the, the 16th, he helped to design a garden for Marie Antoinette that was kind of a, a private place for her where it was a garden more in the picturesque style where she could stroll among uh, flowering plants and then these kinds of follies, these sham ruins, temples to love and uh, you know pyramids and monuments that would evoke history or myth. So that was her little kind of romantic pocket of the uh, park at Versailles. And actually, she was wandering around in the garden just just hours before the crowd stormed the palace at Versailles. And Hubert Robert even painted, uh, even made six paintings of outdoor scenes that decorated the bathing room of, of the chateau at Versailles, right? One of which is at the Met. Yeah, well, that was actually the the, the chateau, the Bagatelle, which is which is a, a a kind of jewel box of a little palace at the edge of the the Bois de Boulogne, and that was built in a in a kind of neoclassical style, and first had a very tight garden, a formal garden around it, and then was expanded to include a more uh, English style, more relaxed uh, English style garden. And Robert, as you mentioned, painted uh, scenes for the uh, for the Bagatelle that showed uh, gardens that were very welcoming and uh, meant to be enjoyed by people on the ground. So your book notes that Rousseau criticizes the formality of French gardens. So the English style, the more relaxed English style of gardens don't happen in France on their own. But how important were artists and painters and their kind of depictions of relaxed outdoor gardens as 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 Hubert Robert's were? How, how important were the artists in bringing the more relaxed English style into France? You know, after the revolution, areas of of uh, France were opened up to the public that had been held by the aristocracy. If we think about the the vast forest of Fontainebleau that had been royal hunting grounds, when that was opened up to the public after the revolution, it it very soon attracted artists who were interested in painting landscape, and the artists themselves began to paint naturalistic landscapes that like the forest of Fontainebleau we think first of all of Corot who began painting there in the 20s that this kind of wild and varied landscape of Fontainebleau be uh, attracted many artists after that in including uh, Monet and Courbet uh, these artists began to paint these these this very natural landscape and in in studies that also tried to create the effect of light and air and it's really the the, the origins of impressionism that you can you can kind of trace back to the to the landscape of the forest of, of Fontainebleau we're going to come back to Fontainebleau in a moment but let me get us through Napoleon first you you also chronicle at at length the gardens built by Josephine Napoleon's wife how did they work their way into visual media, and how did they inform artists? Josephine was ridiculed for her extravagance in uh, building a huge 150-foot-long glass conservatory at Malmaison, and, and she collected thousands of exotic plants that came back from voyages around the world. 
although they her thousands of of exotic plants, many of them were shared with the um, Jardin des Plantes in uh, in Paris, and she supported their scientific efforts and their voyages uh, abroad. But she was also smart enough to commission a, a botanist and the artist uh, Redoute to record her treasures and to uh, accurately depict the thousands of plants that were in her her possession. They were mainly contained in this in this hothouse. And only when they were in bloom would they be brought out out of doors. Of course, many of them were tender plants, so they had to had to be kept in um, in a controlled environment. But the books that were published and illustrated all of the plants in her collection were of great fascination to people. And there were nurseries that sprang up to hybridize some of these plants, and then they became generally available. To the public, I mean, I think particularly of her collection of of two to three hundred varieties of roses. This became a, a fantastically popular plant in France after after Josephine developed her her big collection, and of course the publication of the rose collection after her death by with Redoute's marvelous illustrations was profoundly influential as as well. There are several Redoutes uh, in the exhibition and in the book. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. They're probably hugely influential in the United States as well when pioneering American botanists such as Asa Gray and John Torrey begin receiving samples from uh, botanical samples from the then American West. One of the first things Gray does is hire a botanical illustrator, a guy named Isaac Sprague, who, who also makes illustrations and 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 has his work published in books showing off the American western flora just as these books showed off the the flora that that Josephine had had accumulated your exhibition also includes two watercolors of that amazing hothouse that Josephine had built what did what do they show and and one of them almost kind of in a uh, yeah, well, what do they show? <laughs> well, they they show they show an unusual kind of hothouse in that it was it was not only a place to preserve and protect plants, but also they they she had it outfitted really as reception rooms so that she could entertain people and show off her plants. And so it was really quite a grand affair for for partying <laughs> as well as uh, a plant raising. And I think that aspect of of the greenhouse made it uh, it popularized it. and she she welcomed visitors uh, to Malmaison and and to the hothouse. So her reputation and that of the of the of the plant collection spread far and wide. and we we also have in the exhibition a caricature of of Josephine and her plants that was published in the in the British press. So it was what was going on at Malmaison was pretty well known in England as well, where there were a lot of devoted plant lovers. One of the the watercolors of Malmaison is uh, by Francois Girard, and it's titled Allegory of Empress Josephine as Patroness of the Gardens at Malmaison. And it's it's almost kind of funny because it half of half of the watercolor is is the hothouse, the the, the glass building. 
and in the foreground is kind of a classical style bust of Josephine, and it's being decorated and ornamented by flowers that presumably come from the garden. <laughs> yes, well, and and we have this this figure of the uh, of the goddess Flora who is crowning Josephine for her contributions to botany and to horticulture. We'll have an image of of that on manpodcast.com. So uh, after the French Revolution, after Napoleon and and Josephine come to power and and, and build what we've been discussing concurrently, or maybe a little bit afterward, Fontainebleau, a 40,000-acre forest that had since, I think, the 11th century been the exclusive domain of the French monarchy, opens up and becomes the most prominent location or site of, of French landscape painting in the early to mid-19th century. At the risk of, I mean, it was a lovely place full of beautiful rocks and trees and all that, but so that's obviously one reason to go there. But why else did painters go there? What what did Fontainebleau represent? I think it was, you know, a, 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 a gathering place for artists who were like-minded. I think there was a certain social aspect to it because in the villages nearby, there were lodgings and there were opportunities for socializing with like-minded artists. There was also an interesting phenomenon of of trails being popularized and, and developed in the forest by one particular fellow who who probably invented the hiking trail because he he put markers on trees with little blue arrows that would suggest where you should wander through the woods and then he gave names to the most interesting trees he gave them very grand names after uh, gods uh, like atlas or neptune <laughs> and uh, and so it was in some ways it was almost like an amusement park because people went on these marked trails there were published guides to the park and we've uh, monet for instance painting a very large picture which shows uh, people happily picnicking in in the park with the very grand luncheon on the grass and ladies in their uh, hoop skirts, so it was it was a fashionable place to be, and certainly there there were there were the park became quite accessible to to Parisians because they developed a a bo- boat passage that uh, that that got you there in in a matter of a, a couple of hours, and then of course after. Uh, railroads came in in the 1840s. It was it was a very quick trip from Paris to Fontainebleau. So I th- it was George Sand that at some point to complain that uh, the place was getting to be a little bit too much like uh, picnic grounds. So you know even all those all those huge acres could seem crowded to some people. But I think one of the most interesting things about Fontainebleau is is the fact that it was the site of the first nature preserve that we know of in in history and and that nature preserve came about because of one of the painters who was most interested in Fontainebleau the 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 artist Theodore Rousseau who had was greatly attached to the forest and was quite uh, concerned about the fact that old trees were being taken down and in fact, pine trees were being planted in the in the forest so that they could be logged for timber. And he was very concerned that that the beauty of the forest would be spoiled. And he petitioned uh, Louis Napoleon 
to regulate and protect the, the forest so that in, oh, I think it was 1861 or so, about 4,000 acres of the forest were set aside as a natural preserve. And it was called the Parti Artistique, so that it could be <laughs> preserved not only for artists, but for for everyone. And and that was, you know, it was, it was shortly after that that, uh, that Yosemite then became uh, a natural preserve. But it's interesting to think that this this movement started in France. Yeah, they're almost exactly concurrent, and they're motivated by by you know there are different motivations. And yes, and I should that, say it wasn't yeah. really that the French motivated it, but there was yeah, you can say there something in the air. We were finally appreciating what was naturally ours, not yeah. to spoil it. So there are two works in the exhibition that show these kind of hiking walking paths that you mentioned. One is a picture, a photograph of the forest from the early 1860s by Eugène Cuvelier, in which the the path, you know, cuts right into the heart of the photograph, right in, into the very middle of it. And the other is a Monet of an oak tree with a, a path passing in front of it. And we'll have images of both of those on the website. You note in the, in the catalog that in the that you know in these years artists are taking a particular interest in specific trees both both uh, Rousseau and Monet in in the paintings we just mentioned but also Seurat who is painting saplings in the forest at Pont-Aubert or Cézanne with his you know hundreds of pine trees and and artists aren't just doing this in their work Monet is helping to keep poplars from being cut down along the banks of the Seine for example this is probably too simple a question, but first, do we know why they embrace individual trees as a symbol or something? Yes, like like most popular efforts, there there complicated motivations. But the, you know, during the 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 French Revolution, the tree attained a sort of status as a symbol because. The, there were uh, trees were planted to, as uh, what they called uh, liberty trees. I, I can only imagine that there was this idea of something growing out of the earth independently and naturally on its own as being associated somehow with the idea of individual freedom. Actually, in the 1820s or 30s, uh, one of the French popular publications began to do a series of articles uh, where every every month or so they would feature a different tree someplace. And I, I think that they actually were looking at trees that had uh, un, unusual uh, shapes or were unusual in character or maybe they were exotic imports. But the trees, I think, for artists have always been a beautiful sculptural shape. I mean, we see that from the beginning of of pictorial art, that trees in some ways stand in for either the human form or for architectural forms. The structure of the tree is uh, is an important one. And, you know, we think of the tree of life. In the Garden of Tree of Eden, we <laughs> there the depictions of the Garden of Eden. There's always a tree in the center. I mean, there are a lot of associations that people have with trees, and and a kind of sense that they want to 
protect them or or preserve them and and sometimes the older they get the more interesting they look because they are representing the passage of time or they're representing survival against all odds so this emotional response to the tree i think is something that many of us share we don't like to see live trees cut down anywhere and artists of course being so visual and and interested in creating marvelous shapes, I think we're naturally attracted to the idea of preserving trees. It's probably worth noting that this, that while we're talking about France, that this is an an idea of interest to the British too. So in the 1850s, the British magazine Art Journal heralds the new medium of photography, principally because it, well, maybe not principally, but significantly because the magazine complains that artists don't often, don't always paint trees in a way that makes it possible to tell one species from the other, whereas photography offers a fidelity that will that, that will enable that, that, that will enable a viewer to tell one kind of tree from the other and value it for what it specifically is. Well, let's not forget that in the 19th century, more than 600,000 trees were added to the streetscape of Paris. So <laughs> there is a def- definitely an affinity for trees. So is this painting of trees, this widespread planting of trees in, in Paris and out toward the suburbs, is this beautification or is there a certain nationalism contained within all of this interest? I think as much as beautification, there is a concern for uh, matters of health and human welfare. It was understood that that trees had the property of of cleaning and clearing the air and also providing shade, particularly to to city dwellers. So there were were practical reasons for for planting trees. So in these same years, more or less, artists, painters, especially, say, Manet, are heading out into Paris's parks, such as the Tuileries. Was there an intentionally conscious relationship between the opening up of the forests outside of Paris at sites such as Fontainebleau and the development of and the popularity of the urban parks? Yes, certainly. I mean, we have a we have a huge burst in in um, population in in Paris. I mean, between the middle of the, between the uh, 1800 and around 1850, the population of Paris quadruples. The redesign of, of Paris at mid-century is really meant to provide areas uh, in which the public could relax and, and get some fresh air. So these sites were were needed for the welfare of, of people. And they became very popular uh, recreational sites. And the painters loved them. The painters and the painters loved them. And it was a great place to, to to paint modern life. This is where you uh, you could go in, in into the the Tuileries Gardens and you would see uh, people uh, there and children and and. Uh, 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 dogs and uh, uh, people enjoying the out of doors, people enjoying modern life. And it was a way to represent the modernity of Paris and what was fashionable at the time and what people were doing. 
uh, Manet's Music in the Tuileries Gardens from 1862 shows an almost extraordinary number of people surrounded surrounding tree trunks. Could it was it that was it that packed? <laughs> I have no way of knowing whether it was that packed, but there are other uh, paintings of the period. Oh, in 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 the book, there's one of, of um, the Luxembourg Gardens that that also shows a huge crowd of people in the parks. And I have to believe that these were accurate representations of what a sun maybe a, just a Sunday, a weekend in the park might might look like. And and there were concerts in the parks. The the Manet painting is really meant to show the people that had gathered for a concert in the park. So there were. Yes, there were there were throngs of people. You know, one of the things I, I noticed in the book is that starting kind of in the last 15 or 20 years of the 19th century, lots of artists, Pizarro, Cayabote, a little later on, Vuillard and Bonard, start painting both the large parks and, and smaller urban parks from above. So is that viewpoint a response to... Hausman's new buildings and new viewpoints that were available? Are the artists referring to century or centuries old etchings and prints of more formal gardens? Why why suddenly this this viewpoint from above in, in art of the period? I think you make a good point that there were there were now apartment buildings along the Tuileries Gardens that would allow an artist like Pizarro, for instance, to camp <laughs> to camp out there and get a great aerial perspective on the Tuileries Gardens. But there may also have been influences like that of aerial photography and also Japanese prints that began to uh, flood into into France and Europe after trade was resumed with uh, with Japan in the 1850s. So these the Japanese woodcuts often employed uh, an aerial perspective, the bird's eye view of a landscape, which set it out sort of like a map from a from a high elevation and and presented a sort of a novel viewpoint that the uh, ordinary citizen uh, walking through a park wouldn't ordinarily see and so there was a very novel aspect to that it's kind of jarring visually and probably was experientially to go from paintings of large crowds in in parks there for concerts or what have you to horse racing how do we get horse racing in in these kind of almost suburban parks and and why do you think painters particularly manet flock to it so readily you know horse racing was a rather new thing in france at mid-century i mean it had been adopted from the british there was a great interest in in things uh, british in in france I think the English sporting prints probably <laughs> helped to generate an interest in horse racing. But when um, Napoleon III commanded the uh, the reconstruction, the redesign of of the of the uh, Bois de Boulogne and also the Bois de Vincennes, he had horse racing installed as one of the sports, one of the the diversions that the public could enjoy in each of these huge parks that had been formerly royal hunting grounds. And the 
the racetrack, the uh, Longchamp uh, at the Bois de Boulogne, it was extremely popular. I mean, you can still see it. There, uh, there's still a, a racetrack at, in, in the Bois de Boulogne. And that was, you know, it was like a public park in that it was part of the public park, actually. And, and people thronged there. And, and for someone like Manet and, and Degas, who were interested in depicting modern Parisian life, this was a great attraction. And for Degas, particularly, who was no great fan of, of landscape or, or being in the country at all, was very content to go out to the racetracks in, in the middle of the Bois de Boulogne because he could, he could study the crowds there. He could see the relationships between jockeys and horses and enjoy the, the colors of the, the, the jockey's jacket and the movement of the crowds and the juxtapositions of animals and peoples against this backdrop of, of a turf. So this was a great place. You know, the Bois de Boulogne attracted impressionists because it was a place where there were all kinds of things going on. I mean, ice skating was one of the big attractions uh, at the big lake in the middle of the Bois de Boulogne. And, and even the emperor was often the first one out on the ice. He was a great aficionado of ice ice skating. And and the lake in the Bois de Boulogne was a, was a the lakes were popular places for people to take a carriage ride around. It was practically a a kind of necessary social circle that one might take in the afternoon to get out your carriage and get all dressed up and ride around the and do your the tour de lac as they called it. So these these gathering places for people they were like large outdoor salons were extremely attractive to painters who who wanted interesting subjects. I'm giving short shrift to the section on section in the book and in the show on private gardens as compared to how much time I'm spending on on the more public spaces. But I do want to touch on them. Um, the impressionists and the artists who followed were especially interested in private gardens. Um, think of Monet, of course, most famously, but also Vuillard, Bonard, and others. Is one way to think of their interest in private gardens in the context of the, the expansion of the French middle class, or are there other reasons that the artists pivot to private gardens in the late 19th century? I, th I think if, if I were an artist and and interested in composition and color, I think that I would be, the garden would be a magnet because so many colorful plants were now being developed you know the the imports you know petunias from brazil and marigolds from mexico and roses and peonies from china all of these amazing uh flowers that had bright colors and and novel shapes i'm i'm quite sure these were extraordinarily attractive to painters particularly painters the impressionists who were so interested in color and in outdoor atmosphere and light and the garden would be the studio of choice i should think we'll have images of a couple of, of paintings by manet and Vuillard and others who foreground flowers um, in the way you just did in your answer but it also strikes me that we're kind of coming we're kind of ending our conversation with uh new flowers and new species in france which is kind of where we began it yes that's right colta ives thanks very much a pleasure to talk with you.
a major international loan exhibition at the Getty Center, explores the artistic interplay between the three great cultures of Egypt, Greece, and Rome from about 2000 BC to AD 300. Highlights include finely crafted vessels sent by the pharaohs to Crete, Egyptian statues that inspired the first Greek sculptors, striking portraits in both Egyptian and Greek style, and luxurious decorative objects made for wealthy Romans obsessed with all things Egyptian. Learn more about this spectacular exhibition and the center's spring lineup of events at getty.edu 360. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen Meeting Ground at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. For Loris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCASD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist is engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, artist Ann Appleby returns to the program. She's showing new work in We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me at the Tacoma Art Museum in Washington. It's on view through June 3rd and was curated by Rakhushka. I have an essay in the forthcoming catalog. Appleby's work is held by the Portland Art Museum in Oregon, the Denver Art Museum, the Berkeley Art Museum, SF MoMA, and by plenty of other museums too. Ann Appleby, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tyler. The exhibition in Tacoma features new work, all of which starts in or comes from a very specific place and geography. What is that place? That place would be the Elkhorn Mountains in Montana, where I have lived for 40 years, something, something like that. Give us an idea of, of what that place is like, both in terms of topography and in terms of uh, trees and plants and shrubs and flora. Uh, it's very mountainous. I live in the foothills of the Alcorn and Crow Peak, which are, I believe, about 10,000 feet. And I'm about 5,200 feet. So I'm in, in forest. I'm in Doug fir. I'm in Ponderosa Pine. I'm in Lodgepole. There's some spruce. There's a few cottonwoods and aspen. So an unusual amount of tree diversity, really. Well, for this elevation, it's, it's pretty normal. And there's, it's also sort of a wetlands. There's lots of springs and these uh, drainages that come off the, the big peaks are boggy. And there's, uh, there's moose and there's lots of elk, of course, and uh, willow, you know, things like that for them to eat. They eat a lot of that. So how does all of that flora make its way into your work? Are you making paintings that are rooted in the entirety of the forest, or do you focus on specific species, even specific trees? I usually like to paint in, in grouping so that I might paint the plants and trees that grow along a creek bank which would be the riparian zone. It's that little buffer zone that surrounds where the water comes through, and it acts as a, like a filter system 
And so, for example, I have done that before. I find that to be, I find riparian zones really fascinating because the the flora there is very different from what, once it breaks into the forest, it's, you know, it's a totally different thing. So that's been kind of interesting. I'll also work with, I've worked with medicinal plants. I've worked with seasonal ideas. So yeah, I'll do a spe- I do specific plants, but I might put them in sort of the ecosystem that they belong in, or I might just do it seasonally. And for the show at the Tacoma Art Museum, I pretty much did all the the trees and that you would see in the video. Well, let's start with the video then. What does the video show? And as far as I can recall, this is the first video you've made. Why did you choose to do a video? I chose to do, I had been thinking about video and I'm very intimidated by the technology of video making. So I just thought I'd start to experiment with it a little bit. And it, you know, where I live, I'm pretty isolated, and there was a really big snowstorm, early snow. I think it was the first one of the year. I think it came October 5th. It, you know, it was really like a big blizzard outside, and then the power just went out in my house, and I was like, well, okay, what am I going to do? So I just sat and looked out the window and watched it, and, you know, I get a feeling of, it's very primal, like it's kind of like you're in survival mode, even though I'm I'm in a house. I'm like, okay, I don't have any water, I have no electricity, I have no communication, I don't have internet, I don't have radio. And it's really, I don't know, in this day and age, it seems really interesting to be cut off like that. That happens more and more to people with natural disasters, but it happens here quite a bit. So I was really interested in in that feeling, and I decided to get my camera and set up the tripod and record that snowstorm. And as that was happening, I noticed how the trees, everything seems apparently still, with the exception of the falling snow. And then, if you really pay attention, the trees really start to kind of shift a little bit, and then pretty soon they're really shifting, and you can see the relationship that they have with one another. It's almost like they're leaning into each other, and it's almost like they're communicating, which I'm sure they are, and it's like they are dancing. So I really like those aspects, the conceptual aspect of that, and also that kind of relationship that the trees have with one another, because they have it all the time. That is kind of what happened, and then when I started watching the video closely, I thought, wow, this would be so cool to really enlarge it so that it was almost life-size, and it gave me and the viewer a sense of almost like the Walt Disney, what's the word, where we put our human thing into into other the things. The anthropomorphic dancing trees or something from... Uh, exactly. 
I don't remember yeah. what the Disney cartoon was, but I can picture it. <laughs> yeah, that's what me too. I can't either, but <laughs> I was really interested in that idea. And um, I actually made the video five years ago and just, you know, looked at it and thought about it. And when I was offered the show at Tacoma, I thought, I'm going to use it. And so consequently, the paintings are built around that because all the tree species that I painted as individuals are within that video. The video, of course, is black and white, but the trees aren't. The way the trees in the video move also kind of worked for me as a as, as reminding me how my eyes move around your gridded paintings, how one color leads the eye to the next, and then once you get to the next, your eye kind of sticks on that panel because because there are, there's depth and many colors within each panel. So maybe maybe using 2017's Douglas Fir as an example, that's a six-panel painting, how do you hope and want the eye to move and land on on one of the panel paintings? Well, you know, I think we've been trained in the Western world to to analyze things. And so when people approach a six-panel painting, I think they they kind of intellectually try to figure out what's going on. And then, oh, well, which color do I like, you know, which color relates to me? And, you know, try, they try to break it down. They try to deconstruct it, and they try to figure out how these relationships work. And I'm really interested in having the thing, the painting work as a whole, so that it's impossible to figure that out. And so eventually the viewer will just give up on that kind of, you know, sink into the painting and experience it as, uh, it as a whole, which is, I think, the way we kind of look at the forest or we look at a mountain. You know, the mountain is composed of a whole bunch of different elements, but we just see what, you know, the image of what we say a mountain is, unless if we hike in it. Then we got, get to see the the variations and the ecosystem and the way these various, you know, things of life, actually, the things that are alive there, work together and function together to make a whole. So Douglas Fir is a six-panel painting. How do you build up each surface? How, and, and how does that impact how we, how we see it? I'm really interested in the cycle of trees, I think that they can be used as a metaphor for the cycle of any other life. So often there'll be, for example, there'll be maybe a, a new pine cone and then it'll turn to an, a brown pine cone. Or there'll be the tip of a fir that's like screaming green and it'll turn to a dark leaf. So the underpainting is built around what came before. So if the brown pine cone is brown or, you know, rust color, I might start with a really kind of pale green to build up that, go from there, go through like the cycle of how that pine cone develops, I guess is the best way to say it. Develops into a tree. Well, no, it develops from like a little bud thing into a 
a mature pine cone, which is the seed. Hmm. So not all the way through its development as a tree? No. Ah. That's big. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is there. I think conceptually I'm kind of about that. And when I first started making color field paintings, I did a series that was called The Dancing Ground, and it kind of went with the idea of whatever life has gone before goes into the soil, into the earth, and makes, you know, a luscious thing for new life. It's where the seed can land. So it's kind of like life and death. The exhibition also includes a couple of much larger paintings. So instead of, so the, 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 the gridded paintings are on panel, the larger paintings are on canvas, and they're, they're titled Mountain, Mountain 1, Mountain 2, Mountain 3. And instead of showing, say, an individual species, they, at least for me, they kind of refer toward a, a, a much broader landscape. So not just one species of trees, but trees, uh, and not just trees, but trees as they exist in the landscape, you know, with the mountain as part of the landscape. What were you interested in doing with the mountain paintings? I think that goes back to the idea of the wholeness of a mountain. And I was very interested in the verticality, because where I live, you either go up or you go down. So that kind of viewpoint of walking through a forest and also hiking. It's kind of how do you navigate around trees and how do you navigate to get to a higher point, which, you know, it takes a little bit of logic and it, took, and it takes some reading. You have to be able to read the, the forest and you have to be able to read your path as you pick it through you know, as you pick it, your way through the trees and up. And I was really interested in that idea. You know, I think it references the title of the show, We Sit Together, The Mountain and Me, because I've walked around here a lot, and I know it very well. And, you know, I can, for me, when I look at the paintings, I can reference, okay, if I wanted to get from this meadow up to the top of that ridge, this is how I would pick my way through it. So I'm really interested in that idea. It's a weird mapping of landscape in a, in a way. You know, it, it's funny you, you, you put it that way, because for me, the, the, there is movement within those paintings. I read there as being breezes moving through the trees, which kind of create these shadowy painted echoes on the surface of the paintings. There's also the feeling of walking in the forest. You know, there's the smell of it, and there's the breeze, and there's the rustling of the tree boughs, and there's the wildlife that lives there. There's all of that, and I think that's what I was trying to put into those landscapes. I'm really interested in the idea of landscape as not, not as the human being standing back and looking at the mountain, as I talked about, as a whole, but the experience of being in the mountain or being in the forest. So I really was trying to work with the idea of the body experiencing being in trees, being in the forest, and that sort of relationship 
that I think is, I've always been about that with landscape. I think it's very different than looking at a vignette of a landscape and actually being in it. You know, one of the things I noticed about my experience with the paintings on the wall in Tacoma is that to really feel like I was seeing them, I had to walk back and forth in front of them. Something about the painting motivated me to move so that I could feel like I was having a fuller experience of it. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, when I uh, make the, the more reductive color field landscapes, I often use the scale. And for a long time, and I still do, use kind of a, a triptych that's made of three portals that would be human scale. So they look like sort of like a rectangle, like doors. And I'll hang three of those together. And when I first started using that format, I used it to reference the human body in the landscape. So I'm very interested in that idea. Awesome. Anne Appleby, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.